Hello, welcome to Oh God, What Now, the podcast formerly known as Romaniacs in this most Romaniacs of weeks as Brexit fever sweeps the nation once more. I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. Naomi Smith is the CEO of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Dorian. So the first COVID vaccines were administered in Britain on Tuesday morning. It made Matt Hancock cry and there was a rush to brand it V-Day. Um, is it a good idea to give people a, a kind of turning point, a sort of an optimistic uh, landmark to celebrate or is it too soon especially given the very next day two recipients had uh, allergic reactions well we all need hope I mean that is for bloody sure um, and you know no denying at all that having at least three proven vaccines in the offing is a tremendous breakthrough and obviously very encouraging but I think the accompanying bombast is at best just more nativist bullshit um, and at worst is potentially very dangerous because it simply isn't the same as declaring armistice with the virus Mm -hmm. and calling it V-Day just obviously fuels that fucking narrative. And it's dangerous if it stops people prioritising the other two things that we know we need to do. Um, Some listeners may have heard the the Bunker Daily that I did with um, March for Change on COVID secure plans. Um, And that's all about controlling community transmission and suppression of the virus by fighting it at our borders. And a vaccine is just not yet a substitute for either of those. First, because it's going to take such a long time to roll out and give us that widespread immunity that we need. And second, because we still don't know how long the vaccine gives us immunity for. In the summer, Oxford claimed that you got immunity for about 56 days or for at least 56 days. So there are still a lot of unknowns and it really is too early to be saying we can give up on everything else. Well, I heard on the New States and Pod cast uh, Stephen Bush had found this sort of curious uh, phenomenon where by sort of lefty Remainer vaccine skeptics um, were actually put off the vaccine by all the bombast as soon as Gavin Williamson <laughs> tried to take credit Anatomism. for it yeah they were just like do it is there a Remain vaccine we can take <laughs> Um, And the auto industry is almost as totemic as fish uh, to to the Brexiters, Um, Mm. which is the Ineos. I've never said that out loud before. I think that's right. Ineos. Ineos. Grenadier, which is meant to be built in Wales, will now be built in France instead. Its Brexit backing owner denies it's Brexit related. Um, But Honda having to halt production due to delays in getting part is partly to do with with no deal stockpiling. Is this uh, a worrying sign of things to come, either factories moving or factories sort of having to, uh, to down tools because of these problems? Almost certainly. Um, Car manufacturers themselves face a few kind of different threats from our EU withdrawal because they rely on things like just-in-time supply chains, which is why Honda feels the need to stockpile in case of no deal. Um, And they're also facing the threat of tariffs. um, And some will also be hurt by the way the rules of origin uh, rules work after we've left the transition period. So uh, on the particular issue of tariffs, car makers are particularly badly hit because the price of a British-made car um, is probably going to increase by around they think, €3,000 when it's sold into the EU, meaning it's unlikely that local firms in the UK would be able to compete with um, firms in uh, mainland Europe. And Mike Hawes, who's head of the uh, Society of Motor Manufacturers, the the industry body that represents car manufacturers, said leaving the single market and customs union means we're going to incur significant additional costs, but a no-deal scenario would be far more damaging, which, you know, all of this uncertainty uncertainty really makes that Ineos decision understandable. Um, And so Therefore, the sooner a deal can be struck, the better. And let's all hope that it is. But who who knows? I'm well, sure more, we'll talk more about that later. <laughs> more on that later. Um, Minnie Rahman is from the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hi, everyone. 
Uh, so the hostile environment is back with a vengeance this week as the Home Office rushes to deport people before EU transition ends and has made homelessness grounds for deportation. What's going on here? Is this is this something that you that you saw coming? Yeah, definitely. So there's two things happening here. The first is that the government has not secured a deal on Dublin arrangements, and that's the arrangement that allows the UK to return asylum seekers to the first country that they enter into the EU. So they're trying to get rid of as many people as possible before transition ends, as that is one of the main ways that the government gets out of giving people the right to be in the UK. So with that in mind, the government is desperately looking for ways to increase the number of people that they can deport after Brexit. And why the government thinks they're being really smart here is because the immigration system itself puts people at a higher risk of becoming destitute or homeless. They know that if you have no recourse to public funds and you lose your job, homelessness is an outcome. They know that extortion at home office and legal fees increase your risk of not being able to pay rent. It's a a calculated and twisted cycle. And apparently some local councils are refusing to enforce this. Do, Do they have the power to slow it down? Yeah, it's it's really amazing to see that some councils have said they won't comply with with this aspect of the new rules because they are the ones who ultimately are responsible for people who are rough sleeping. And this actually reduces their ability to support that population. What I think is interesting about it is that we've reached a point where the government is so wedded to this concept of the hostile environment that local authorities are being forced to say that, that they don't agree and that actually they can't they can't do it. And this is the way with a lot of aspects of the hostile environment, you know, the responsibility and the cost is shifted onto to the public, onto public servants to implement. And most people don't want to be border guards. Um, in that sense, a lot of people and other government departments have the power to say that they're not going to comply. You know, the NHS, universities, we've, we've already seen teachers have some success with this. And I think local authorities are really important in essentially divesting from the hostile environment. So pretty Patel have to drive around in a van doing it herself? Oh, God knows what she'll be up to. I will not put anything past her. <laughs> We're delighted to be joined this week by James O'Brien, LBC radio presenter, host of the Full Disclosure podcast, author of the new book, How Not To Be Wrong, and a record-breaking three-time guest on Romaniacs. Woo, thank you for having me. Welcome, welcome back. It's still, and we've changed the name, but it's, it's, still, it's still us. Yes. Um, in your book, you talk about changing your mind about various things. So before we start, I just have to check that you haven't decided you were wrong about Brexit. That it's, <laughs> that it's, that it's actually going to be fine. <laughs> it's actually more specifically, it's about clinging <laughs> on to the carcass of wrongness. Even as the, as the waters of reality wash over your head. So, so no, I'm... Um, I'm walking the tightrope between complete vindication and absolutely no interest in triumphalism like everybody else here is. Um, In the cases of both Brexit and uh, support for Trump, there are plenty of reasons for voters to change their minds after 2016. But um, in both cases, a relatively small number did. Um, You know, in writing your book, did you find there was a a social stigma or perhaps a psychological instinct that that makes it actually quite hard to, to admit you're wrong? I, I think I, I presume it's different for everybody, but I did sort of think that perhaps I was tracking broader themes. And, you know, the simplistic description would be stubbornness. But the more I thought about it, the more I wondered whether in some ways we're all responsible for, for the intransigence of, of people who are still blind to Trump's depravity or, or indeed the absurdity of Brexit. Because I don't know whether by accident or design, they were both so, so emotional and race relations came to probably 
define both debates. It always struck me that that was what they most obviously had in common. So I, I think because the emotional investment was so huge, expecting an intellectual climb down was, in retrospect, a bit optimistic. And I mean, the book hasn't been out long. So if you had encouraging feedback from readers or listeners who who have been inspired to examine their own assumptions. The most amazing one I got wasn't from a listener, actually, but before the book was even out, a, a lad I was at school with, there was a lot in there about my school days and, and, and getting beaten and all of this sort of public school stiff upper lip training that's so relevant to the mess we're in when you look at who the last two prime ministers... Oh, crikey, that's a bit of everyday sexism. <laughs> who of who the last three prime ministers... <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I would have happily forgotten Theresa May, but now I think I'll probably welcome her back in a heartbeat. Um, so, so I, I, yes, I mean, I, I got a letter off a lad I'd been at school with that completely um, threw me. It was very emotional and very, very open. And then, yes, lots of other people have been in touch about the personal journey I went on. As, in terms of what I'm doing on air, I, I'll still beat people up. It's more about picking the right fights rather than feeling that you have to fight about everything and, and have your fists up in a, in a state of sort of permanent hypervigilance. So I'm hoping on the programme to create a space in which people will find it easier to do what you what we talked about in, in your last question, to kind of just acknowledge reality. I, I mean, Michael Gove this morning was, as far as I could tell, was, was reduced to claiming that people had voted for European Union officials to be supervising UK officials on UK soil. In, um, in, in these new customs offices that we're going to have. And I, and I thought if, you, if he can sit there on, on the radio and on television, there's still quite a lot of work to be done. <laughs> on the show this week, it's the final throw of the dice in the EU trade talks because a desperate gambling metaphor is bound to make us feel that the country's future is in safe hands. As the Prime Minister heads to Brussels, will his personal intervention change the state of play or has he made his decision already? Plus... As mentioned, How Not To Be Wrong, James O'Brien talks to us about his new book and the art of changing minds in an ever more tribal world. And in the extended section for Patreon backers at the end of the show, it's 12 glorious months since Boris Johnson's government won re-election. Setting aside the bungled COVID response, the bungled provision of PPE, the bungled exam results, jobs for chums, breaking international law, defending bullies, lying in the commons, stuffing the north of England and backing advisers who break the law only to sack them when they upset the Prime Minister's girlfriend. <laughs> How have they been getting on? So we begin with what one EU negotiator has called the end game of the end game, the final stages of negotiations for a Brexit deal. And Boris Johnson's dinner with Ursula van der Leyen tonight might be the most important dinner since the Red Wedding. Naomi, let's start with the uh, age old question. How final is this final deadline? Will there be when will we know for sure whether or not we're getting a deal? It's like fucking Groundhog Day. This is the only question anyone ever asks me. Um, some are still saying that the only deadline that matters is the 31st of December, the date when we officially leave the transition period. And some are saying that really it's it's this week, it's Thursday. So by the time listeners um, uh, have, have downloaded this show, uh, and that is because lots of EU member states have already been given permission to kick their no deal plans into action. Mm. Um, and whether we get white smoke tomorrow ahead of the EU summit that is happening uh, at the end of this week or not, I think there is zero chance of us not continuing some form of dialogue and negotiating next year and the year after that, despite what 
our government spinners would would have us believe um, because we're just too interconnected we're too reliant on Europe and too involved in a global crisis for that not to have to be the case but ideally though of course we'll get a slim deal in the next couple of days and from that we can then begin to patch on all of the building blocks that would help us resemble a much more modern uh, trading arrangement over the coming months and years. We've been hearing about the same three sticking points for months. Uh, Fish, level playing field, governance. Um, Why are these issues so intractable? Why is it the same three things week after week after week? Because sovereignty (laughs) is all anyone cares about. Um, I suspect, actually, Fish is probably not that intractable and uh, the UK would move on it. But I think asking the EU to move on level playing field to any real degree It's just asking them to tear up the fundamentals of the single market. And it's very dim of Britain to have ever expected them to do that. Um, Why? Well, because we're we're such a special case. Uh, Whether we like it or not, we are not Canada or Japan. We're an island on their doorstep. And we have a land border with the EU for as long as Northern Ireland is still a nation of the UK. Um, And so it's it's really simple. If the UK wants a trade deal that involves no tariffs and no quotas, then the EU will have to, you know, expect us to sign up to stricter rules. And the UK has just never really fully appreciated that. And that's why it's intractable, because we've not gone in to negotiations fully comprehending that 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 is not something that they can move on. Um, There's an attempt over the weekend to scapegoat France, um, our favourite scapegoat. Because uh, it's held very firm on fishing rights, for example. Mm. Is France being uh, unusually tough or is it in line with the rest of the EU27 and just uh, an easier target? Well, for sure. OK, yeah, well, of course, you know, the age old English French stuff, it's just that's easy, you know, tropes for uh, the Express and, and the mail and the meat for the government to throw them. But uh, it, it is true that Macron himself has has probably been harder than many of the other EU27 leaders to date. He's, of course, got elections next year and the year after. And the polling does give him a good 4% boost if he stands firm against Britain's demands. However, while this tough line was initially only really being held by him, it has expanded to include Spain and Netherlands, and even Belgium, Greece, Portugal, and I think Austria as well, have been joining in to a greater or lesser extent on this sort of hardball play with Britain. And I think that's largely because they know, as as we do and as our listeners do, that the UK will probably have to come crawling back at some point or another if there is no deal. So perhaps their thinking is just, well, you know, let, let's tear off the plaster, get on with it so that we can get back to that stage of mm. Britain being the sick man of Europe that comes back to us. And what is the constituency for no deal at this stage? He will be really outraged if the government concedes on on these three points. I mean, it's almost as if the Leave-Remain split has now just reformed around the deal-no-deal split. Leavers of all different shades trying to say, well, well, I've always said that we should get a deal. However, it really isn't going to be the end of the world if we don't. And coming out with all this guff about, you know, it'll be bumpy. It might be very bumpy. But basically all saying, you know, true true leavers are absolutely fine with no deal. And of course, this weekend, if Tim Shipman's piece in the Sunday Times is to be believed, the cabinet basically gave uh, Johnson a mandate to go for no deal. But remember, there is no mandate in the country for that, really quite the opposite. Um, and and it's it's absolute bollocks to suggest that, that no deal is just bumpy or you know an administrative thing. The double whammy impacts of no deal on top of coronavirus are really well publicised. You know we we at Best of Britain did that work with the Social Market Foundation, and mm. no deal causes threats to our food security, medical supplies, peace 
policing, not not to mention economic prosperity. And the world over, the trend is for more regional trade integration, not less. And so to have zero agreements with our nearest trading partners would just have a profound impact and you know, really would hurt the poorest first and worst and nothing short of a, an abject failure of this government if Johnson doesn't pull off a deal. Well, the government apparently has a secret unit dedicated to the nightmare scenario, which actually seems like a very likely scenario of a COVID surge plus no deal plus a harsh winter. And Robert Peston was leaked a 34-page government dossier outlining the worst no deal scenario, which includes, drumroll, job losses, price rises, delays at the border, shortages of medical supplies, food and chemicals, bankruptcy for one in 20 local authorities, reduced capability to fight crime, terrorism and viruses and civil unrest. It's just a little bump, just a little bump. Bit bumpy. (laughs) Minnie, the Tories have been trying to claim uh, that their winning slogans, get Brexit done and oven ready deal, only referred to withdrawal agreement. It didn't didn't promise an actual deal at all. Um, That was only a year ago. I'm sure I remember that election. Um, Is is that kind of gaslighting going to work? I mean, are people that, that forgetful? I mean, haven't they been gaslighting us since the beginning, to be honest? But I mean, for people like us and probably a lot of the listeners, of course, that's not going to work. We're going to see right through that. But the reality is that there are a significant number of people in the country who already think that Brexit is done. They think we've left and it's over and there's nothing more to worry about or they've completely disengaged from it. Um, and the problem is that the government has a really strong line of uh, defence, if you want to call it that. They can very easily say that that it's the EU's fault, and that misdirection works with the people that it works for, and it, and it doesn't for everyone else. Do you think Johnson, by going to Brussels and having, having this special dinner, um, trying to sell himself as the only man who can knock heads together and get things done, is there is there a, is there a bit of theatre here so that if there is... If there is a deal, it's another kind of heroic bojo coup. I mean, yeah, definitely. He tries to sell himself as a lot of things, and I don't think any of those things are working particularly well. He's just completely full of bluster. He's a man who'll say anything to both get out of accountability and at the same time seem like he's a a national hero. And I think, you know, you just have to really look at what he has achieved as a prime minister. What has he achieved? <laughs> How can he possibly say that he got anything done if we leave without a deal? That's the definition of not getting things done. That's just running down the clock. James, think talking of the uh, the sort of blame game that's going around at the moment. Uh, strangely, Peter Mandelson and Owen Jones found something they could agree on, uh, namely that Remainers, of course, Mandelson uh, was a, was a very strong one, um, were too oh. uncompromising and taught themselves out of any chance of a soft Brexit. And you expect Brexiters to blame Remainers because they've been doing that all along. But but why this line of attack? Do you think it's genuine kind of uh, genuine soul searching, or is it a sort of political positioning? Um, I, I, I'm not sure Mandelson was quite as as in the fight as some people remember. I may have been wrong. It may, may be me that, that didn't see him or, or, or notice him much, but he, he seemed more to be hovering above the fray. And, you know, Owen's case is also that if we had only realised that it was going to come down to a choice, I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, between, you know, no deal stroke, vanishingly thin deal, or some sort of uh, arrangement whereby we, you know, Norway or, or EEA or EFTA, um, both of them seem to me to have completely forgotten the role that immigration played in the debate. I, and I really do think it's that simple for once, for our side of the argument, as opposed to simplistic and usually wrong on the other side. If, if freedom of movement hadn't been abolished, you know, if the United Kingdom hadn't been turned into a country where, where a th- small minority of, of people were persuaded 
either that abolishing their own freedom of movement was a price worth paying to uh, prevent some largely mythical wrongans coming into the country, or that they would be able to abolish freedom of movement for everybody else while retaining their own. And I think in their heart of hearts, that was probably a much more popular position than even now we acknowledge. But unless freedom of movement was abolished, then, you know, Farage would have had an embolism two, three, four years ago. And, and every time Farage farts, the whole Conservative Party <laughs> hold their nose at the moment. And, and I, I, I'm still, <laughs> that would probably hold true, wouldn't it, moving forward? So, there's a, again, it's the intellectual versus the emotional. Yeah, OK, there's probably an intellectual argument to say that if it had have been finessed to a point where the choice was clearly between where we are now and where we, we could have been if we'd... Um, retained freedom of movement or, or customs union membership, maybe we, it could have been sold to the people, but but not against the emotional background of, you know, just think of that breaking point poster and, and the, the, the language and the Daily Mail front pages. And just be, it's so interesting, isn't it, that the media obsession with immigration has abated and therefore the public opinion regarding immigration has, has, has disappeared. But it would soon be, you know, they, these are embers. They are never cold colds. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to ignore uh, people that say that Theresa May's deal was soft Brexit. Mm. Um, but Owen Jones's column and some other people have, have sort of seemed to suggest that, that, that you know, the, the exit ramp was the indicative vote in the spring of 2019, although it seems like a billion years ago. Um, do you think that that, that is a, that, that there were missed opportunities there? Right? Do, you, do you feel like actually, you know, these were just indicative votes and there were so many other places to go? So the idea yeah. that if all Remainers had just gone, OK, you know, yes to Norway, uh, the, 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 the Tories would have just gone, uh, yeah, all right then. I mean, that's exactly it. It's ridiculous. This is why I genuinely wonder whether I've, I've not fully understood. Or I mean, Mandelson's piece was a throwaway paragraph, wasn't it, in a much broader context? But mm. I, I haven't really understood Owen's arguments because it seems absolutely crystal clear to me that while this might work on paper, it was never going to happen in the crucible of, of post-Brexit British politics. The idea that they could have got anything through the House of Commons in, a, in, a, in an institution that contained... Brexit hardman, Steve Baker, Peter Bone, and not just the fact that there were a significant rump of them, the fact that they're never off the bloody telly and the, and the, <laughs> and the radio and banging on now, even now, just with this sort of epic ignorance. I heard Peter Bone arguing with a freight forwarding expert the other day who I'd had on my show loads of times, and luckily I don't have to balance out people that know what they're talking about with people who haven't got a bleeding clue, but the BBC <laughs> still feels that it does have to do that. And so... No, against that backdrop of observable reality, the idea that the idea that any of this could ever have happened, any softening could ever have occurred in that House of Commons is 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 I mean it's just nonsense. I we'd, think we'd have been hearing the phrase vassal state every yeah. day, wouldn't we? Remember that one? That's an, an old hit. Yes, it is, and no one really knows what they mean by it. <laughs> but I mean, these people are so so stupid that it, 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 the, the frustration levels. Um, I don't know that they ever sort of go down and this revisionism ignores the stupidity and, and that's probably the, the biggest mistake of all. Um, Naomi, Zoe Williams wrote a, a very powerful Guardian column um, where she was kind of as, as, as a kind of, you know, sort of strong Remainer herself. And she concluded, those abstracted arguments had a nihilistic fervour. It simply wasn't possible to match. and We drained the life out of ourselves in the attempt. But I suspect we could have yielded immediately and still ended up exactly where we are now, yes, except absolutely. more ashamed. Um, you were in the thick of campaigning, obviously the best for Britain. Do you think that there was a chance 
for this sort of uh, soft Brexit that people are talking about along the way? Were there, were, there, were there kind of strategies that in retrospect you think could have paid off? No, it was always, and Brexit is still, an internal Conservative Party debate that the entire country, if not the entire continent, has been sucked into. And we must never, ever, ever forget that. There was never a real chance of a soft Brexit. I mean, during Theresa May's tenure, there was a moment when a less less hard kind of Brexit deal might have been possible. But don't forget, she, just like Johnson, faced threat after threat from her backbenchers, which helped to scupper that chance. I loved Zoe's piece. Um, and, and I agree because, you know, we didn't do any of this because it was easy or winnable. We did it because it was the right thing to do. And history is full of people who just didn't intervene sooner. So I don't regret it at all. And I can die with a clear conscience that I tried and, and groups like Bessa Britain and a few others that have survived carry on with their credibility intact. And actually, unlike Zoe, we do, she says, that we, you know, we had the energy sapped out of us doing it. We, we've still got fire in our bellies to carry on. And that's because we're winning the argument. You know, look at the polling consistently for years now on the question of whether it was right or wrong to leave the EU. We are many percentage yeah, points yeah. ahead uh, as of the last time that the poll was done at the end of November, 50% say it was wrong to leave, In uh, only 38% saying it was right to leave. So we won the debate with society, but we lost that power grab of the hard Brexiteers of the Conservative Party who have been enabled by a corrupted first-past-the-post voting system. Uh, and, and that coalition of leavers is fracturing, as we always knew it would, because they were just a contradiction in terms and never defined what leave actually meant. They never agreed what Brexit should look like. Um, and, and we'll be here picking up the pieces as and when we need to. And finally, uh, could you just quickly explain what's happening with the Internal Market Bill? Because on Monday, the Commons voted down five Lords' amendments. Uh, But the very next day, Michael Gove resolved the law-breaking clauses that the Lords were trying to amend regarding Northern Ireland in the UK-EU Joint Committee um, and said, look how clever I am. Um, So so what was that all about? Was that just political posturing? Like, we're going to do it, but we're not going to do it because the Lords tell us to. Yeah, I I see this as a pure negotiating ploy. Um, There's a fear that... Yesterday's announcement of a deal in principle over the Northern Irish border removes a key obstacle to a UK-US trade deal, um, and some believes believe therefore that it might make no deal more likely. Uh, but broadly, I just think it was, as you say, a negotiating ploy, and they didn't want to be told by the unelected chamber what to do. But but they know that that was a very very uh, bad move for. A country wanting to be seen to be negotiating in good faith, even if they weren't actually, and they needed to have a, a kind of a golden ladder to climb down from it. Yeah. That's what this is about. Well, well done, Michael Gove, for not breaking international law. <laughs> this time. This time. <laughs> Next up, last year, James O'Brien published the best-selling How to Be Right. He's just followed it up with How Not to Be Wrong, a more personal book inspired by taking up therapy. Uh, So I thought we'd use it as a chance to talk about wrongness and changing your mind more generally. Um, James, our colleague Ian Dunt uh, has talked about, uh, in his his book, How to Be a Liberal, Mm. from the how-to cinematic universe. Um, (laughs) And uh, and he sort of talked about how admitting error is fundamental to the to the history of liberalism, unlike more rigid ideologies. Um, 
is is that is that one thing that appeals to you about being a liberal? That you, you you can actually sort of uh, admit you were wrong about something without the whole thing sort of crashing down around your ears. Yes, I, I mean I, Ian's book is a lot a lot stronger on um, the political traditions of liberalism than than I will ever be, and and and, and deeply illuminating. But it does seem absurd, doesn't it? That, that I think it's actually misattributed that famous alleged John Maynard Keynes line about. When when the facts change, I change my mind. What what do you do, sir? And that that really resonated with me long long before I even thought about writing the the, the new book. But do you know, Dorian? I think in retrospect, I thought I was good at changing my mind for most of my life, but actually, I was probably just as stubborn as I as, as I spent most of my the people that I spent most of my career castigating. So, um, it's a liberating form of liberalism when you actually do manage mm. to, to recognise the importance of stepping down and, and indeed admitting you were wrong. And economists and pundits rarely admit when they've been wrong. So sort of take one example from this year, people like Toby mm. Young, Alison Pearson, Julie Hartley Brewer, oh, consistently, <laughs> consistently wrong about COVID, the predictions, there won't be a second wave, it won't be that bad, et cetera, et cetera. But, but they never sort of admit it and they just keep on going and they never have to admit it because their employers no. never seem to bother them. Is the British media... Uh, maybe not just the British media, but, you know, set up basically to offer no incentive to owning up to mistakes and perhaps a disincentive. I think there's a disincentive, yeah. I think, I think that's a really good point, that actually it, 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 it's, it's this weird psychological stubbornness that is perceived as a strength. And historically, you're supposed to have really pungent opinions. And I think the only reason I got noticed was that my really pungent opinions tended to piss racists off instead of absolutely delighting them, which was the more <laughs> traditional approach to the phone in radio format. But if 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 it's if, if you're peddling prejudice, which most right wing colonists are, then I don't think you can ever afford to let the light in. So you can't even really as if you're a right wing colonist in the in the guise of the ones you've described, I don't think it's conscious I think there's two things going on. I think the consumer will never forgive you for letting the light into, into the darknesses of, of the personal prejudices you've endorsed. But I don't think, and I say this as, as someone who did suffer similarly, I, I don't think the actual protagonists, the public figures, if you like, are, are capable of conceiving their own wrongness because we have spent our lives building up these ramparts of rightness because in my case and this is what I learned in therapy if if I didn't put epic amounts of effort into convincing myself of of all of these things whether it's you know that didn't do me any harm or you know that's character forming and and strong people never explain and never apologize something I think Boris Johnson still subscribes to actually uh, explicitly not just implicitly then it becomes existential to admit this. It becomes an actual personal vulnerability to admit that you're wrong almost about anything, not not just the really big stuff, but if you admit that you're wrong about anything, you tug at this thread of, of self-constructed armour and, uh, and you live in constant fear of that armour falling off. So I hope I'm not sounding sympathetic to the people that you described earlier, but, but I, I can certainly muster up some empathy in the context of, of why they are such complete idiots. <laughs> I mean, in politics, there's even less of an incentive. And I wonder whether that is, I mean, obviously, yes, you've got certain personalities uh, that are like mm. the ones you describe. Um, but I wonder if it's sort of systemic because U-turns are vilified and, and admitting yeah. error is seen as the ultimate weakness. Is there a way, 
of doing you know of doing politics where a minister could just go you know yeah hands up I'm really sorry going to do you know sort of do everything we can to uh, mm. to fix this without basically damaging their career I, I think that we've seen that in other countries during the uh, coronavirus pandemic. I think Macron did a fairly hefty mayor culpa quite early on. And uh, I, I think it's clear that I'm going to generalise massively, but I think it's clear that the female heads of state have managed to plot much more sensible, co- not, not, not less risky courses, but much better explained and much better informed courses because they entertain the possibility of being wrong, which is, to answer your question directly, that's probably the most important precursor to having politicians that can admit that they are wrong. It's this, it's entertaining the possibility that you might be. And I think if I was redrawing the model of politics, uh, I can't wait until someone gives me that job, then I would um, I, I begin with, I don't know. I, th- I think this, this, rush to really strong conviction based politics you know my country right or wrong cubed uh, uh, that probably creates an environment in which contemplating the possibility that you're wrong is impossible and if contemplating the possibility that you're wrong is impossible then god knows admitting mm. that you're wrong always will be always well, of course, i mean scientists of course the whole thing of you know the de- development of science is that you realize that the previous generation you know w- was was right about some things and wrong about some things that's how scientific knowledge advances and the way that, yeah. that they were there was that real uncertainty and some some scientists were actually very anti-mask back in march and then sort of very quickly we're just like no we were wrong about masks we should you know masks are really useful and they seem to be able to do that more uh w- without suffering some you know existential crisis and just go no that was mistaken yeah I, well I, I think i think you've nailed it actually dorian as you so often do and it's it's um it, it's coon isn't it i think thomas coon's paradigm shifts in the, in the it's probably i'm sounding a bit pompous I, this is literally the only thing i remember from my degree course but the structure <laughs> of scientific revolutions um explains precisely what you've just described so you know everything from the theory of relativity uh down gets gets revised it gets redressed and ultimately as the evidence becomes more apparent it gets replaced so you know science is the best available explanation for all of the available evidence and politics in this country and, and america and in many other places at the moment seems to be the polar the polar opposite in that i will reach my conclusion and this brings us back to the colonists of every color and hue politically speaking if you've laid out your stall, then you can't contemplate rearranging it, let alone replacing it. And, and that, that rush to certainty, I'm going to drop a name that I doubt has ever been dropped on this podcast before, the great Terry Wogan. Well, <laughs> this is, I've got to warn you, this is real A-list stuff. We were backstage on the Alan Titchmarsh show. <laughs> the, great, the great Terry Wogan, he turned to me and he said, well, first of all, he asked who I was. I should make that absolutely. <laughs> and having explained, he said, "Ah, so you're the fellow with the pungent opinions." And I thought, I don't want to be the fellow with the pungent opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be the fellow that thinks about things and actually provides shows the working on it on his calculations. And and if the ghost of Sir Terry is, 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 is listening, then I hope ever since ever since that encounter, that's the fellow that I have tried to be. But um, it's a lonely furrow on, on in my corner of the media. Yeah. Obviously, my, my, my fellow panelists do do that for a living. But in the sort of popular, but not necessarily populist media, it's a it's a very very rare um, 
priority. Um, Minnie, in, in James's book, he talks about this permanent state of hypervigilance that's sort of intensified by, by criticism, and I think especially online mm. and especially on Twitter. So, and when I've made a concession or an apology on Twitter, the person I'm arguing with uh, is, is often sort of surprised. They're like, oh, really? You're just gonna you're just gonna say that you were wrong. Um, so, 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 so Minnie, do you think that Twitter has made us live more than ever in this sort of defensive crouch, where there's this this huge sort of psychological uh, refusal to give an inch that you actually have to kind of grapple with? Dorian, I think I just have to say you do have very good Twitter manners in comparison to the rest of the Twitter population. <laughs> um, you know, I, I kind of I don't know whether I I think that. Twitter really is the main forum for political discourse. And I think that is part of the problem and one of the reasons why it feels so heated and toxic a lot of the time. I think we've forgotten that there are people out there who don't have Twitter and are still have are still having political conversations. People have forgotten that they can have these conversations in real life. And when you do have them in real life, they're, they're a lot better. On social media, there just isn't space for nuance. You don't see what people are doing in their real lives or how the rest of their personalities come into it it's the public equivalent of Hansard you know it's on the record forever and people can create a persona for you based on their interpretation of 140 characters Mm. and on top of that it's a a forum which creates opposition because it's quick it's constant people aren't necessarily super engaged in the topics they're speaking about but we're all seeing the same information so it kind of leads people to think that they are experts in everything Mm. and for other people to see their every single opinion which just isn't how real life works. So I think it creates a kind of really weird uh, microclimate where everything is intensified and and everyone can be misinterpreted. Do you think the the language the language we use is broken as well? Because because people can't even agree on what you know, say woke or cancel culture or even you know censorship means now. So a lot of the time you see people are basically sort of arguing at, at, at sort of at cross purposes. Yeah, I mean, I love talking about language because it it evolves at such high speed. There are so many words throughout history that have been politicised and that we would absolutely no longer use and words that have just fallen out of fashion and words that have been reclaimed. And in in a lot of ways, that's a good thing. It means we're catching up with ourselves. I I have no idea how words like woke or cancel culture will, will play out in the future, but I don't think it means that language is broken. To me, those words are just examples of of politicised words. And I think it comes down to knowing your audience when you use them. For example, I I wouldn't go into a conversation with a conservative and use the word woke in any context. But I might if I was with a group of young activists, you know, those words are for specific groups of people to use for political purposes. And often arguments ensue when the opposition recognises that the word is having the desired effect on its audience. Um, Naomi, I recently read a book called It Was All a Lie by a former Republican called Stuart Stevens, who left the party over Trump. And he talks about how sort of scary and lonely it is to abandon your political identity after decades. And I'm sure if I decided, having this sort of Romaniacs association, that that I was all in for no deal, um, that would not be a that would be a (laughs) wrenching experience. Um, Perhaps a breakdown. Do you think that people feel the reason why some people can't you know admit they were wrong is they almost feel that rejecting certain opinions even perhaps not even the most vital opinions is is sort of rejecting their sense of self and their their sort of place in in the world 
To a certain extent, I think that that probably is true um, because it's been a values war, this whole Brexit debate, and and certain values have correlated very strongly with Leave and Remain. And and we certainly, as Remainers, feel it is an attack on our identities to be stripped of our citizenship and our, our freedom of movement. Um, and also, for example, on the Leave side, you know, it was led by xenophobia and nativism. So if you come from a diverse family background or you have, you know, very diverse friendship groups or you appreciate diversity uh, in our communities, then, of course, you will view Brexit as a threat by virtue of the people that are leading it and the consequences of it, because it is an ugly nativist approach. And if, uh, you know, if you're one of the the three million EU27 citizens living in the UK now, you you cannot not feel that it is deeply personal. And we also know from a lot of the academic research done since 2016, that the referendum voting identities have strong correlators to other personal values. Um, So for instance, Leave voters like Priti Patel are much more favourable towards bringing back the death penalty than the average Remainer is, for instance. Oh man, she she thinks of nothing else. (laughs) When she's not driving around in her big van. Um, One of the lines I really liked uh, in James's book was from my fave, 1984, um, about how anger is a a blowtorch flame that can be turned in any direction. And if you take away one target, the angry people will just find another, which, of course, is a real problem in politics. And you certainly get it on, I suppose, the the sort of blue labour end of labour, that if you just give people what they want, if you concede on this issue, then then they'll be fine. But do, do you think that's the sort of problem that once you've got this sort of populist nativist energy, that, that it's always going to turn on something and however many concessions you make? Absolutely. Uh, these people aren't interested in trying to seek consensus or healing yeah. the divides in our country. They actually they thrive on them and they relentlessly attack Labour on issues of economic competence, despite the fact that they have themselves presided over a lost decade of productivity growth. Um, so I think it's it's really important that we, you know, we 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 don't follow that blue labour line. You know, you cannot cozy up to these people because fundamentally they want to destroy you. They want something very different from you, uh, and they will they will use you and spit you out uh, at the other uh, at the other side. But we do need to separate out levers, though. I, I you know, I I don't want to lump. All, I don't, just wouldn't want listeners to think that I'm lumping all levers in together because I definitely am not and, and haven't done for the last few years because um, they really aren't all the same. Um, and and I'm very much specifically talking about these, you know, deeply xenophobic nativist leaders that we've got at the moment that have been driving a lot of that and and for whom, you know, as you, quite rightly you say, you know, first it's immigrants. Uh, then it's, you know, non-white people, you know, then it becomes even more sinister after that. I, mean, I don't know what could be even more sinister, but, but you know, history has taught us that that's how this plays out. Do you know, if I may, yeah, I, I, I think Naomi's just sort of, because no one will let her do that, you see. She, she will be portrayed by the people she describes as thinking every single person on the Leave side is, is uh, that horrible rump yeah, that, that, yeah. that you described. And that was actually, that, that proves the point that you were making previously, that it doesn't actually matter if you do try to be gracious or do the decent thing on occasion. These people will always portray Dominic Raab, no less, um, tried to portray me in exactly the same way that, 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 that Naomi just said. He thinks every single one, every single Leave voter is a thick knuckle dragging racist, which is, you know, demonstrably and categorically untrue. But once that seed is sown, it's, it's halfway around the world. And, and it's another Orwell quote, Dorian, isn't it? That 
probably sums it up because they're wrong. When Labour went soft or, or pretended or toyed with the idea of buckling on immigration, they would have been wrong. The voters' lives would not have improved by abolishing freedom of movement. So, so I always go with that there was truth and there was untruth. And if you clung to the truth, even against the whole world, you were not mad. And, and, and Labour was in danger when it goes blue of going a bit mad. <laughs> well, J- James, we, we talk a lot uh, on this podcast and elsewhere about whether when somebody says something um, outrageous, you know, it, we're going, well, are they ignorant? Are they malicious? Are they unhinged? Um, and sometimes I think that it's it's really the results that matter, not the motivations. Yes. But after reading your book, do you, do you think it's important? It is important to work out why people say what they say and that really you can't understand politics unless you're interested in the in the psychology of these these key players. Uh, yeah, I do. And I mean, if you hold a view that is hurtful and unnecessarily hurtful, you should probably try to work out whether it's fair and, and why you hold it. And when I dig into my hurtful views that I've held over the years, I, I, I discover usually something quite painful in my own past was, was the source of it. So no one wants to be told that about themselves. You, you can't go up to these, these, these um, loons on the, on, the, on the mail or the, or the telegraph and tell them that they're probably nursing some great pain inside and that's why they've ended up being such hurtful people but it is almost certainly true and then and then on the grander scale you know it's a throwaway line but brexit is built upon letting people blame their whole lives on somebody else and and they'll never be happy they'll never feel better however wherever it moves next it's bloody cyclists this week cyclists have replaced um uh, <laughs> Brussels or, or, or Muslims or immigrants. It's, it's cyclists now, and it'll be teachers tomorrow. Give it six months, they'll be back on the junior doctors and the nurses, and they'll have forgotten about all that passionate clapping they did on their on their doorstep. So it really doesn't matter, does it? Who, who, who is in the firing line? If you have this visceral need for a target, then whoever gives you the target will be briefly your hero, however bogus that target may be. And that, that I mean, there's Nigel Farage in a bloody nutshell. Well, this idea here that you have that a lot of this anger comes from wounded people and, and, and what you're trying to do on the yeah. show now, which is perhaps not to just sort of, you know, get the better of people, but to kind of work out where they're coming from, this sort of more empathetic approach. Uh, has it has it paid off in the sense that, you know, what, by giving out that empathy, you, you sort of, you get something better back for the listeners? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's a it's a tough one. We haven't had Rajar all year, of course. But I was I was I was I'd started therapy a long time ago, and the show started shifting a bit, partly because you know you can bang your head against a, a brick wall a billion times, the wall is always going to win. And and so, however entertaining it was, and however viral the clips went, there was always that sense that the stars of them um, didn't go away with their minds changed, but but the people listening possibly did. And and so yeah, I love it's it's. It's a bit, it's a tiny bit Socratic, isn't it? Just to keep saying why, to keep saying why, and to say a lot less what you think, but to keep asking them why they think what they think. And there aren't that many topics that lend themselves to this sort of approach. That's the weirdest thing. Is it's a, it's a, it's a, a an idea, and, and indeed your question is framed very much in the context of the last four years. Mm. But but Trump and Brexit and Johnson stroke Cummings are not normal political phenomena. They are freakish. And, and the, the, the skills that you need to unpick support for those three things, I hope, will be redundant, uh, not too 
long from now because normal politics, climate change and, and vaccines, I suppose, fit into that sort of model of, of just treating abject nonsense with the same weight and authority as, as, as evidential or, or at least evidence-based opinion. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, my, my show can still be very punchy and very bouncy and, and, and great fun. But I, just as a human being rather than a journalist, I'm just a lot more interested in why people think what they think than I am in mm. what they think, which is, you know, when you think about it, kind of pro- probably quite dangerous for a radio phone. <laughs> Well, finally, Minnie and Naomi, I'm going to ask you to each tell me one thing that you have been wrong about in politics. <laughs> or at least have changed your mind about. Oh, Minnie, you go first. <laughs> Honestly, I've been wrong on so many things. <laughs> I think I have a bit of a tendency to be quite dismissive of things and to think that they're not as important as they're going to be or that, that like it doesn't apply to me. Um, one of the things that I will always really regret is that I am probably going to get a lot of people screaming at me for this, but I didn't vote in the alternative vote referendum because for that exact reason, I didn't think it was a big deal. I didn't think it was important. I couldn't be bothered. I thought everyone who was talking about it was really boring. Um, They were. Yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) as it was the only referendum that actually committed the government to change I I feel like I should have done something anything and actually now that I look back I think a different referendum result there a different engagement there could have had a very big impact on on what happened in the following years. Nemi? I used to believe that grammar schools were a good way of helping bright kids from poor backgrounds to get a good education. Uh, But now I realise that overall they just uh, entrench existing socioeconomic privilege and that comprehensive systems actually tend to do far better for society overall and certainly um, in terms of boosting social mobility. And Finland and South Korea are the two countries that always get pointed to by educationalists as having, you know, the best education systems sort of for the under 16s in the world and, and both of those systems are comprehensive Um, and I guess you know as well I hadn't appreciated the extent to which grammar schools reinforce the bullshit of elitism that I think really feeds into a lot of the exceptionalism that that you know our public school boys that that run the country most of the time also have you know that some people are just born cleverer than others Mm -hmm. and this theory that a few good men are the ones that actually make history which of course is absolute nonsense they just Mm -hmm. happen to be in the right place at the right time leading movements um but we have you know this enormous wonderful capacity to change and all of us do and pigeonholing children at 10 years old is just this absurdly crude measure of success that it's just absolute madness um and then the other thing that i was obviously very wrong about was and it would be remiss of me not to mention it on one of these podcasts was i was totally wrong to trust nick clegg in 2010 and to vote for the coalition <laughs> at that special conference you know he abused my trust our trust um and our trust was very valuable and uh, i was wrong and i should have voted against whenever we get personal with you naomi nick clegg always gets it <laughs> <laughs> he's the joker to your batman Before we go, it's time for But Your Emails, in which we respond to your most thoughtful electro letters. This week, because we have a guest who's good with listeners, we have two questions. Uh, The first one's for James from Dean Lee. Um, How to actually make the shit stick? Uh, You have a wealth of experience of walking angry and confused crawlers through their delusions, misconceptions and prejudices, and even you can't convince someone to change their mind. What chance do the rest of us have when there isn't even a shared sense of reality to base our discussions on? Well, I'd go back to the why instead of the what. So keep asking people why they think what they think until they realise it's ridiculous rather than hitting them over the head with the ridiculousness 
I did think for a tiny moment that perhaps this oil tanker was beginning to turn around. But on a media level, um, again, you, you can't obviously get stuck in as much as you might be able to in a bigger time slot. But they, I wish they'd start playing back more tapes to these people. This is what you said two years ago. And then it's their own voice that you will hear saying the polar opposite of what they're saying today. And you could do it. Good Morning Britain nailed it. Not long ago, it was one of those uh, the, the, those clips that went out. I can't even remember who it was. It may have been Hancock saying something, and they got the clip ready, which means someone in the gallery was beavering away. And before the interview ended, Sus- Susanna could say, "Oh, well, hang on a minute, um, this is you." And that that I think would um, get the shit to. Speak. Mm. Um, and one for Minnie Naomi. Andrew Budkowitz says, I was a Remainer, now I am a rejoiner. Am I a bad citizen for wanting there to be a no-deal Brexit, knowing there will be people hurt by this, as I see it as the only way the hardcore Brexiters will see where they went wrong with their assumptions? Um, I would say that you're you're not a bad citizen, um, but you are wrong. Um, uh, It's very tempting to feel like that, and uh, if only that were the case. But I'm afraid uh, there are a couple of reasons why I don't advocate that position. First of all, the cost is too high. Yeah. The people that get hurt by it, you know, th- this is this is literally about medicines being able to get into the country. This, is, you know, people will die, p- almost certainly, as a consequence of of a no deal Brexit. People will uh, suffer terribly in terms of access to food. We know that food poverty is already terrible. It will be exacerbated. The, the environment minister, George Eustace, admitted it uh, at the weekend. Food prices will be going up, and that's you know at a time when. Unemployment is record high and people just cannot afford uh, to, to absorb that extra cost, meaning people and children will go hungrier. But also, you know, history has just taught us that that isn't the sequence of events. The Tories selling off their council housing stock in the 80s under right to buy and fast forwarding 20 years and now councils are having to struggle to buy back council homes. Uh, You know, we've got an an acute housing shortage in parts of the country and a quality housing crisis across the rest of the country. Does any Conservative ever admit that that Thatcherite policy of creating a homeowning democracy was wrong? No, they don't. So it just simply doesn't follow that leavers will suddenly go, oh, oh, this is why you said it was a bad idea. It just won't happen. So I'm afraid I I can't advocate for it. Um, Minnie, is this the sort of, you know, the hardcore Remainer version of accelerationism? You know, the idea that if things get so, the idea that some people on the on the left have, that if things get so terrible, then, you know, we'll, it will be socialism or barbarism and, and it will bring about the... Uh, the revolution is this is this the remainer version just rub people's faces in no deal and then they'll realize <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> i mean I, I have to agree with a lot of what naomi said there like i don't think it makes you a bad citizen but i really i, I don't think it's helpful and look i i categorize myself as a campaigner and i so often have this conversation with other campaigners who are like but we've got to change the person's mind who completely disagrees with everything that i agree with <laughs> And it's just not the right focus, you know, that you're never going to change some people's minds. And you have to accept that 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 is the case um, for for hard Brexiters. Instead, I think we should focus on the people who, you know, who weren't expecting.
expecting this outcome or didn't have an interest in it or didn't vote at all. You know, those are still big numbers of people. And what is more useful is finding a way of saying, OK, look, all of us are united in that we've been completely and utterly fucked. So how do we move forward? You know, that's a really difficult question. But I think finding the common ground there is more important than being angry at the people who are never yeah. going to agree with you. Well, interesting, I suppose we've had a good example of this in uh, the American election, where it turned out that enough people, you know, largely kind of people who lived in the suburbs, switched from Trump to Biden. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the show. My thanks to Naomi. Thank you so much. Really good to be back on. Minnie. Thanks, everyone. And our guest, James O'Brien. Thank you. Remember, we've got our Christmas Zoom special on Thursday, December 17th. Just for Patreon backers, search Patreon Oh God What Now to sign up. We'll be back next week with the last Oh God What Now of the year. So don't forget to leave a substantial substantial meal out for Father Brexit. <laughs> but first, a remixed theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and thanks from me to Simon Hagen, P.T. Rantanen, Helen Pickering and Dee Dee Davies. Thanks very much from me to Daniel Heary, Dave from Leeds, Liz Woollett and Julie Giles. And thanks from me to Adam Harris, Peter Thorpe, Emma and David Hounslow. Take care and see you next time. Oh God, What Now? It was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Minnie Rahm. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieber. The producer was Andrew Harrison. And the assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronayevich. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Hello, if you're still here, welcome to the special extended section of Oh God, What Now? Especially for Patreon backers. One of whom suggested we call it, Oh God, What Next? <laughs> this week, it's exactly 12 months since the Conservatives won their victory in the 2019 general election. And what a year it's been. A great year for Britain, just as Boris Johnson predicted in January. So we're going to look back on his last year as Prime Minister. Not just all the great stuff, but maybe one or two bad things too. Uh, unfortunately, Naomi's had to uh, rush off to an important uh, meeting. But we've got Minnie and James uh, to talk us through this magical 12 months. <laughs> um <laughs> James, have, have we learned anything new about Johnson the man and his brand of bluff populism? Or is, has he performed exactly as expected uh, when confronted with a massive crisis? I think I don't think anyone could have expected, even his harshest critic couldn't have expected him to fuck things up quite this spectacularly. Um, and, and, and I say that as someone who's tracked his absurd uh, political career from having voted for him to become mayor of London in 2008 because I was high. Um, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't high, obviously. I was just not as engaged in politics then as I, as I am now. And I was quite taken by his, I think he was pledging to give amnesties to illegal immigrants. So, you know, and he was funny on the telly. So I was as guilty of all the silliness as, as anybody else. But, you know, the, the, I mean, he's despicable. He's not kept a promise in his life. And that was a taster of the extended Director's Cut edition of Oh God, What Now? Available exclusively to Patreon backers. If you want to hear the rest, then search Patreon Oh God, What Now? podcast, sign up, and you'll get access immediately. We hope you enjoy it. See you next week.